Uh, it's a privilege for me to be here for the first time as the guest preacher at St. Luke's <laughs> Church, and particularly an honor to be here for the 54th anniversary of ordination of my dear friend and teacher and mentor, uh, Dr. Lewis Weil. Um, I started coming to celebrations uh, to, uh, to Lewis's anniversary in 1973. And I remember when you had your <clears throat> the anniversary at Neshota and you, we had the liturgy in the Red Chapel and there was a celebration and you made that green punch. Oh, <clears throat> you remember? <laughs> so you'd been a priest for about 11 years then. So that was when we were all about, I was about uh, 12 and Lewis was <laughs> 22. So it's a long time. I learned some things from him about a commitment in the parish ministry to believing and attempting throughout my ministry to uh, speak of the things that I learned in seminary. Uh, there were a lot of people who thought, well, you know, this is just for those of us who are being trained to be ordained people, and you don't, out of pastoral solicitude, wish to say too much about them when you get into parish life. And I made a, pa a pact to myself that I was, for example, not to get in, going to get into the pulpit and tell you that Adam and Eve were two historical people. I simply was not going to do it. And in this particular case, we're talking about the liturgy, which was is uh, Father Weil's specialty. And uh, from the side of the Episcopal Church that we come from, it is at the center of our self-understanding, worship and how important that is and how it animates all of the other things. And uh, that was something that I learned and have been somewhat faithful to off and on in terms of, of doing that. Uh, Father Weil was on the ground floor of the uh, revision of the prayer book in 1979. And as the result of that, he earned the reputation as being one of the most destructive forces in the Episcopal Church that we could <laughs> imagine. And so uh, that's part of it. I also remember, Lewis, something that you may forget, but at one Lent, you did a series, a Lenten series on, a, on a, a, something from St. Basil the Great, the mystery of thy dispensation. Do you remember that? It had a powerful effect on me when that happened, and I was very grateful for it in terms of... Um, uh, being at Neshota House when I went was like the Marines, spiritually. <laughs> you were in the middle of the uh, Wisconsin bush, the ice got thick and the trees got bare, and here we were all stuck together. And I remember a particularly tense community meeting in the basement of the refectory when one of the wives of a parishioner said, well, you know, you people need to understand that in the real world, and you interrupted her and said, excuse me, this is as real as it gets. <laughs> right? So when you think about your community life, and here is the people of God at St. Luke's Church, Sometimes your community has something to do with all of the things that you think represent an absence of community, because that is the community, and that's how we understand it. This is the feast of the holy name of Jesus. 
It hasn't always been called the holy name of Jesus. It used to be called the circumcision. If my mother were alive, she was not an Episcopalian, but she'd probably say the name has changed and say, I'm so glad because the other name was sounded a bit clinical. <laughs> but this is an, uh, an important feast because it focuses our, us on the source of our salvation, on Jesus. God saves in the original languages. And so in my sermon this morning, I'm going to say some things, do a little recapitulation from the Christmas uh, preaching. You know how I love the word recapitulation, and I want to do some of that now. And I want to speak, uh, first of all, about how we understand Jesus as the Word, and then to say some things about how we understand what it means when we believe that Jesus saves, and how does Jesus save us, and why that is so important in our common life together. And there are competing views that have existed within our tradition about the way salvation is affected in the human person, and for that matter, in the community. And it's important for us to decide which one we believe to be the most congenial in that regard. I also wanted to mention, it popped into my head, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, uh, the writer says that Jesus bears the very imprint of God. And we're exhorted by Paul today to have this mind, the same mind as Christ Jesus. And how do we get that? And part of it has to do with how we touch uh, our divine center and how we understand uh, Jesus both in his humanity and in his divinity. And in John's Gospel, in the, in the prologue that we read on Christmas and on the first Sunday after Christmas, we have Jesus referred to as the Word, the Logos. In Greek, Logos can be defined as thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, standard, and my favorite, the organizing principle. And as Ellen T. Cherry, in her wonderful article I'm going to quote from again in a few minutes, she says that this idea of Jesus as the Word is the Christian Dharma. The ordering of the cosmos. You know, one of the uh, definitions of the word cosmos uh, is in Greek is ornament. And I always think it's interesting this time of year, Christmas time, when we think about ornaments on the tree and we think of our own self as somehow one of God's ornaments. I had someone say to me not too long ago that when his father died, I, he said, I looked up in the sky and I thought to myself, maybe there, that's my dad one of the ornaments in the sky. So Jesus becomes the organizing principle. Father Thomas Keating, one of my heroes, in his book uh, about, the, about the, the liturgy, uh, he speaks about uh, Jesus and his humanity, and he says this, 
The Greek New Testament word for flesh is sarx. Sarx means the human condition, the incomplete, unevolved, immature levels of body and soul. Jesus did not merely assume a human body and soul. He assumed the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. Sarx refers to the human condition closed in on itself, fallen and not interested in rising. It is the human condition committed to biological survival for its own sake or for the sake of the clan, tribe, nation, or race. It means human nature in its subjection to sinfulness. And remember that in, in the New Testament, sin is the word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. And one can conclude from that that if you miss the mark, you can get yourself in a situation where you may be able to hit it one day, right? Unless you believe that the sinfulness of humanity is so irreversible that there's simply no way back. But I think that when we talk about salvation in a minute, we'll see maybe there's another way to see what that means. The Greek word soma refers to the body insofar as it is open to further evolution. It is the human condition open to development. The word was made flesh signifies that by taking the human condition upon himself with all its consequences, Jesus introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. In this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. If God were a human being right now walking around, this would be who he would be like. And the Johannine community looked at that and they said to themselves, here's the thing about this. We're not just watching something like a film. He gave us tools that we can use. We can have the same mind among us that was also in Christ Jesus. And that ability has been given to us and we can put it in our hands to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. This is a possibility. And this is the promise of the gospel. Let me say something briefly about the two names, Jesus and Christ. You know, some people talk about Jesus like uh, Christ was his last name. Right? Or Mr. Christ. Christ means Messiah in Greek. And the people who saw him said that he was now bringing back to them the halcyon days of Israel. This is the promise of restoration. And in Jesus, we are going to see both a kingly Messiah and a priestly Messiah who will bring the restorative processes to Israel. But the difference is that in his preaching and teaching, he has told us and used our own sacred literature to confirm it that this message, this messianic thrust into human history is for everyone. It is not merely for just the people of the covenant. 
And so it does not vest them with special privileges. It vests them with special responsibilities to be God's people in the world. And that this is the way in which we understand ourselves as the Christian community. When I came back to California from Tucson, Arizona, uh, a a well-known priest in the Diocese of California by the name of Don Seton, who was the rector of St. Paul's Church in Oakland, died of cancer. And his funeral was at Grace Cathedral. And uh, it was quite a thing. And Don had been known, I knew him before I went off to Neshota House, he was an expert in Buddhism. And he did a lot of Buddhist stuff. He was very interested in Buddha. He may have been one of the first Budapalians, <laughs> right? So everybody thought, well, Satan is going to become a Buddhist. That's all there is to it. He's going to become a Buddhist. And when he was on his deathbed, the preacher, a priest, uh, was preaching the, the, the sermon. And he said, when I came to see Don and we sat together in the room and said together the the prayers in the prayer book at the time of death, we said them together. And he said to me just out of the blue, he said, you know, there are a lot of people who think that uh, I'm going to become a Buddhist or I was going to become a Buddhist. And he said, I was never going to become a Buddhist because I can't live without Jesus. I can't live without Jesus. And in my own personal life and spirituality, Jesus has become very important to me. And I feel deeply connected to Jesus. Not Christ. Jesus. In his humanity. And through his words and works, he said something about how I can touch my true self. What does Father Keating say? We are not God, but our true self is God. And so the processes of God are at work in our common life. The word Jesus means God saves, Yeshua, or Yeshua. And so when we think about how that salvation is affected, certainly in the Middle Ages and in the Reformation period, there was a big think going on about what that meant. How do we understand this salvation? How do we understand the processes of salvation? And Ellen T. Cherry, in her great article in the Sewanee Theological Review, on, it's entitled, uh, On Being Anglo-Catholic. She wrote it in 2003 and presented it to an organization I've been part of called Affirming Catholicism in the Episcopal Church. It's a wonderful article. She says, by the way, that she believes that Episcopalians generally, and certainly those who are of a Catholic disposition, who believe in the centrality of the liturgy, and that coming to the liturgy is important, even if you don't know what in the world is going on, that somehow week after week, Sunday after Sunday, you're kind of marinating in the grace of God and in the presence. You know, I've said this a so, uh, hundred million times. 
People used to come out when I was a young priest, more insufferable than I am now. And they would say to me sometimes, you know, Father Brewer, I have no idea what this business about this being Jesus' body and blood means and all the theories about how the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. All I know is that when I receive Holy Communion, I feel better. And now I realize, good, I want everybody to feel good. We want feel better. Because when you do, you will make a difference in the world. You'll understand something about what it means. So Ellen Cherry is talking, though, about salvation. And she says, No council defines salvation for the church. Our communion sits on the fault line between two interpretations of salvation, both of which have scriptural grounding and are present in the church fathers. The first view... So is salvation is participation in and union with God. The Greeks call it theosis. The other is salvation viewed as atonement made by Christ for us. The difference is viewing salvation as the world's restoration, while the other is response to the divine wrath. So she says, you know, what we ought to be thinking about as the slow, steady processes of the grace of God that happen to us liturgically and in our community life, that we're like a pickle. That we get matured in the pickling juices. But somebody who believes in avoiding God's wrath has usually had an experience similar to a Pop-Tart. <laughs> They've had a moment, Right? That's one of the threads that runs through our tradition. The belief that you have to have a felt experience of God, known as the consolation. Don't throw any cold water on that, it's important, and many of us have had those experiences. Not just once, however, and we're not all toasted to a crisp. We do need to do a little marinating in the grace of God. So the idea of participation salvation is about healing, the transformation of human nature into the fullness of God and union with God. At one time, these ways of thinking, by the way, though, existed side by side. So some of us may prefer Pop-Tart and avoiding God's wrath. And we can spend a lot of time in our life trying to do that, sometimes with some success and sometimes with less success. But if we are marinating, we will discover sooner or later, quickly or slowly, the movement of God's grace in our lives. We will notice we will have a new freedom and a new peace. This is the promise of the gospel. We will be restored. So part of the Christmas message always is think about the fact that the four affirmations that Christmas brings every year, the goodness of our humanity, the fact that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, it is possible for Christian people to be joyful, and you and I are to be in big and small ways in the world people of peace. Let me end by speaking of Father Keating again and talk about how he describes in uh, the, the mystery of Christ, the liturgy is spiritual experience. The five ways, the five presences of Christ at the Eucharist. Christ is present in the assembly. 
You know, one of the great things that Father Weil taught me was that the movement of the renewal in the liturgical life of the church, if it's at its best, understands us all to be together. That we believe in the ordained ministry, we believe in that we have a hierarchical church, but we are here merely to preside, and it is everyone here today that will affect the change in the Eucharist when the time comes, or as it comes. Christ is present in the assembly. Christ is present in the proclamation of the gospel, and in fact, all of the biblical witness that we hear at the liturgy. Christ is present in the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer that the presider prays as the prayer of consecration. Christ is present in the Holy Communion. And he says when he amplifies this, it isn't that we receive Holy Communion and Christ is present until the digestive juices have gotten to work and that goes away. Christ is present in you and we see the fifth presence being in us as we go out. Christ is present as we go out into the world. So this week, think about as you move to uh, the Christmas tide coming to an end in Epiphany, think about how you're going to be uh, faithful to the saving work of Christ. Mother Teresa, of Ab uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, Jesus has no other hands but your hand, no other heart but your heart, no other legs but your legs, no other mind but your mind. And this is the way in which this gets done. Somehow, for some reason, we are needed to bring God's purposes present to a world that God made and called good. Amen.